Hello, can you hear me? There we go. Hi, Dave. Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> you can hear me okay? Yes, I can, yes. Nice. How <clears throat> you guys going? I'm doing great. I'm, uh, yeah, it's it's morning here. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure it's evening for you. Um, yeah. So I'm just, uh, just kind of settling into my day. I actually just ate steak for breakfast, so... <laughs> felt, felt appropriate oh, yeah. before talking to you. I'm kind of trying a um, autoimmune paleo sort of thing oh, um, really? right now. So steak for breakfast, steak and coffee. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Yeah, really good. Uh, I'm on a trip away from home at the moment. Um, and the primary purpose of my trip is actually to work on a book I'm writing, uh, but I'm also doing a bit of climbing as well. So yeah, it's quite nice. Been nice. here for a few days. Oh, this is this is exciting. I have to ask, what is your book about? Are you are you able to talk about it yet? Or are you still keeping yeah, it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm just writing a book about my own climbing, really. Nice. Um, yeah, so I guess it's sort of autobiographical in a sense and that I am just talking about my own experiences through my history of climbing. But as I try to do in a lot of the stuff I make, I'm, I'm trying to get a, like package up and get across the interesting lessons i've learned along the way mm. uh, in all sorts of aspects of it yeah nice so been, yeah is that part of your process you just have to disappear and and go off and hide in the woods or hide hide in the mountains and um, kind of immerse yourself in the writing process i i do find that helps yeah to, to focus um at home uh i mean like i mean i guess a lot of people at home especially if they have like family like you know there's a lot of stuff going on and um, it's hard to focus, but also the, just the, the complete detachment from all the other tasks that make up my normal working home life, which in the main is actually just doing social media stuff, but especially mm. editing video. So just getting completely away from that, like leaving my computer, my computer behind and uh, focusing on one thing. Um, but also actually for writing about climbing, I find it quite yeah, a little bit easier somehow if I'm actually on a trip and I'm also focusing on climbing as well. And it just helps me to get fully into the mindset. Because mm. sometimes, especially writing about climbs I've done in the past, um, I can sometimes feel that I'm a little bit nonchalant about them. Like it's a bit like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether where they did matter at the time. So when I'm actually trying hard climbs, then it helps me to get into that mindset of no, mm. this is important. You know? yeah, that's cool. Yeah, there's more excitement there, more energy behind it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, uh, it's great to see you again. It's been about two years, I think, since our first episode came out. And uh, yeah, episodes 56, 57, it was a two-part one that I put out. And Dave, that was my most downloaded episode for over a year, despite the podcast <laughs> growing quite a lot in that time. So, wow. and it, it's actually, it's it's really... It's really encouraging to me to think about that because I remember in our first conversation, it was one that I was looking forward to so much, having followed your own, you know, your blog and your climbing for so long. But I asked you a bunch of my burning questions about finger training, about your diet, about all these things, and you wouldn't give me a straight answer, which is something I appreciate so much about you. There was no black and white responses. Everything was like, well, it depends, you know, like it could be that blah, blah, blah. We don't totally have conclusive evidence. And it's really encouraging to me that my audience responded as positively to that as they did, because I, I really, I, I love that. I think everything in the world is nuanced and the way that you bring 
um, different perspectives to any given topic or conversation and kind of dig into that and you're willing to kind of say, I don't know for sure, but here's some thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think it's great. I think it's a great lesson for the rest of us to kind of internalize because it's so tempting to you know, jump from bandwagon to bandwagon as we navigate training and diet and all these other things. But, um, but yeah, you, you do a really good job of kind of just being really honest and, and really open and, um, and curious. And, uh, yeah, I think it, it came through in our first episode and I'm really proud of it. So thanks for that. And it's great to, great to chat with you again. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I remember um, seeing that on your Instagram, I think the comments, uh, that I looked on your Instagram after that episode and there was people commenting about that, that they, they thought that was refreshing, that things weren't so black and white. Um, because it, it is a, a product, I think, of social media these days. People are, I mean, people certainly message me all the time and they, they'll say like, you know, uh, I don't know, is campus boarding bad or <laughs> or vegetables bad? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's like, well, uh, I'm afraid you're not going to get a, a straight, bad, or good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that simple, totally. I'm curious, do you find it, um, you've been putting out a lot of stuff on Instagram over the last year or so, sharing these experiments that you do, and trying to share that same kind of nuance on Instagram. I personally have found that to be kind of a losing battle. I just feel like it's a really difficult place to communicate nuance and people want black and white. Uh, whereas a podcast, it's a great format for a longer discussion about these things. Does it feel like an uphill battle for you spending more time on social media or does that has that felt um, productive and fruitful or somewhere in between? Because you, you really, you engage with a lot of people. I'm always surprised at the thoughtfulness and the length of your responses to people who are probably just trolling you, honestly. I mean, some of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this guy puts a lot of energy into this. Um, do you feel like it's been helpful? I feel like, uh, especially for some of the subjects I'm talking about, where um, often I'll put up a post that is actually provocative in a way in, in that it, um, it might be contrary to people's expectations. And, and I feel like I, I can't really do that without following it up with mm. a bit more information. So, you know, on Instagram, for example, you know, you only get time for a couple of paragraphs. So it, it has to be a snapshot of information by, by default. Um, but in the comments, people can obviously expand as much as they like. Um, and they often have questions, which are often good questions. Um, and yes, sometimes they are trolling questions as well. But um, And I do answer those because... For, for everyone else's benefit, because often those questions, which might be trolling questions, may also be the question that is in many people's minds who are watching but too afraid to ask. Mm. <laughs> um, so they are watching as well. And so I think it is interesting to to go through all these things. So, but I, de I definitely feel like, well, if I'm going to put this post up, I have a bit of a responsibility to then follow up with a bit more back and forth. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, I quite, I quite like that. Um, you know, I, I quite like just sharing uh, the, either the perspective I have or research I've read or, or experiences I've had. I mean, that's, that's really what it's, what it's about. I mean, I, I see that as the, that's um, what I think I, my, my job is really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like I, I've, I've immersed myself in climbing for a lifetime and also studied related to climbing. And, and my job is really to just share what I've learned uh, mm. And so, yeah, I just feel I can do my job, really. I think it's really cool that you have had these um, 
<clears throat> specific, really significant breakthroughs for yourself, and yet you manage to not be defensive of them when they are criticized. For example, the carnivore diet. You know, you've had great mm -hmm. results with that personally for your eczema and, and um, beyond. And we can talk about that more. Um, and of course, you know, people are going to come out of the woodwork who are like, you're crazy, you're going to die of heart disease or whatever else. Um, whenever, whenever I have gotten pulled into a certain diet, like for example, I mostly follow a paleo diet and that has worked really well for me and I feel really good. When, mm -hmm. when that's criticized or met with skepticism, I, uh, I always automatically feel a little defensive and have to remind myself, wait, I don't have any skin in this game. I don't care if anyone else thinks it's a good idea. It's working for me. I don't have to defend it. You know, it, it, it's not a natural thing for me to just be able to talk about it kind of passively and curiously. I have to remind myself constantly, like, oh, I don't have to defend this. I don't have to get defensive right now. But it's, mm -hmm. you know, it feels, it almost always feels personal when it's food because it's like, well, I'm, this is how I'm choosing to live. And so this person's criticizing this way of eating, but it feels like they're criticizing me or they're drawing into question uh, whether this is healthy for me and that's making me second guess. Anyway, I'm, I'm just curious how you navigate that because you seem to do a really good job of staying scientific and kind of neutral and just um, discussing these things. And, and I've never seen you react defensively to criticism. Yeah, um, there's pr probably a number of reasons I would say one is that uh, I've been doing um, this kind of activity of being a professional climber for a long time. So, and I've had these sorts of discussions that can get a bit intense, not about training and nutrition, but in the past, it was often about climbing ethics. Mm. <laughs> One of the other aspects of the climbing world that gets people hot under the collar is climbing ethics, um, especially trad climbing ethics. Um, so, I mean, I remember when internet forums were only just a thing 20 odd years ago, people discussing some of my winter routes um, and having these, and, and also styles, you know, on-site climbing versus red point climbing, all sorts of things like that. Uh, you know, where to place bolts, where not to place bolts, all of these things. And so I, I spent a lot of time observing other people either remaining kind of calm <laughs> and and sort of sticking to their argument or or vice versa, getting hot under the collar. And, and generally speaking, I thought getting hot under the collar seemed to not serve people all that well, mm. even if they were actually, even if they, they were actually making points that made sense. Just the fact that they um, got defensive or or you're even angry, as people sometimes do on, on the internet, uh, tended to not come over that well and not achieve their aims of making people uh, either understand their point of view or actually change their point of view. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other aspect is also that. Um, some of the things I've done, I, I don't really expect people to to understand uh, from the get go. It's like, you know, uh, some some you know some people have said to me like, it's totally irresponsible and silly to solo an eighty plus or some other or trad route. Like that's a ridiculous thing to do. Or how can you say that you can do that safely? And it's like, well. You know, for someone who doesn't who doesn't have a, a long history in, in doing climbing, may not understand how it's possible to actually make make that safe uh, to right. do, and it would seem like a mad thing. And I, I mean, I remember the 
going to another subject, I remember the first time I, I ever heard of someone eating a carnivore diet. And it's like, they eat only meat. And this is when I was doing a ketogenic diet myself at the time. <laughs> I was already uh, doing a so-called extreme diet. Yeah. And even then I was thinking, that is completely bonkers. Like, and so feeling my own just uh, history and, and, uh, and bias, I guess, coming into view. And I had to really take time over months to get my head around that. Uh, so I don't expect people to uh, just take a lot of these things at face value. And it's good that they don't because there's, there's like, you know, if you go around the internet, you can find people saying all sorts of things, whether it's about um, how to climb, how to train, how to eat, whatever. Mm -hmm. All these ideas that are out there on the internet now. And, um, you know, when you come across something that surprises you, it's good to be skeptical and, and scrutinize it. Yeah. Um, and also, the good thing about any idea is that if it's scrutinized and it stands up to scrutiny, then it's, that strengthens it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I see scrutiny as a good thing on the whole. Yeah, it is, it is a fascinating time that we live in. It's never been easier to um, find whatever you're looking for. You know, it's never been easier to um, find a, an, an entire group of people who are totally thriving on, you know, any, like any diet you can think of essentially. And I think that makes it really hard to tease these things apart. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that reaction to the carnivore diet when you first heard about it. I had a very similar reaction. I remember my friend Brent, I think was the first person who told me about the carnivore diet. And he was, I was standing there and he was telling my friend Ellie or our, our friend Ellie, uh, because Ellie suffers from Lyme disease and he had read some oh, anecdote yes. or something of of the carnivore diet helping with Lyme disease, which he was right about. Like now that I've learned more about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's actually maybe something worth trying for that person. But he was telling her about it and I just, I think out loud, I said, that's fucking stupid. You know, that was my, <laughs> that was my gut reaction. I yeah. was like... I was like, this is the most bro sciencey thing I've ever heard. You know, some <laughs> dudes lifting weights, eating nothing but meat. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but, and it took me longer than you. It took me probably another year to kind of um, start to hear more stories and actually get curious about it. And like, oh, that that's really interesting that it's so... My first interest was like, oh, it seems so effective for like autoimmune issues. It's like the ultimate elimination diet. That's kind of how I first got curious about it because of my psoriasis. But... Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I have a couple topics picked out for today that I'm most excited to talk to you about. And then I have some questions from patrons. And if there's anything else that you're excited to talk about, I'm totally happy to throw this outline in the trash and just, <clears throat> just wing it. So let me know. But, uh, I do want to hear topic number one. I want to hear about your latest diet experiments, um, your motivation behind them, because I'm just very curious as to why you're continuing to do as many experiments as you're doing and what you learn from them. So that's all topic one. And then mm -hmm. topic two is uh, I'm curious to hear what you learned from the assessment you did recently with Ollie Tor at Lattice Training. Yeah. And if you have any big takeaways from that. And then, yeah, mm. the... <clears throat> the listener questions span a handful of different topics. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm <my>, um, <clears throat> still digesting my steak, apparently. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, just starting with uh, your first question about doing diet experiments. Um, so, I, yeah, the, the last time I spoke to you, what was that, a couple of years ago, um, I was in the middle of doing diet experiments, and I still am now. Um, and, and really that's because 
they they always they, I always learn something from them, um, but they also always leave me with more questions mm. <laughs> and more things that I might try to further optimize. And also because I'm skeptical about them myself, I I, I second guess my own results a lot of the time, and I think could this have been due to something else? <laughs> I mean, with diet experiments in particular, that's often a major problem. You know, if you like, for example, if you eat more of one thing, then you eat less of something else. Mm. You're trying to figure out uh, what was responsible for any change in your health or performance is really kind of tricky. Um, so recently, I mean, I, I've kind of gone back and forth with um, different diets, and then usually I settle back to a straightforward omnivorous diet, which is very low carbohydrate towards ketogenic, and, and I, I feel really good on that. And I would say that, these days, I would call that my default diet that I would return to if I'm not doing any specific experiment. Um, but last year, uh, I was talking with a friend from Glasgow who who also likes doing diet experiments and who also has had some of the same health problems that I have in, in the past. And he was talking about doing this experiment of eating only the patties, the burger patties from McDonald's. And as a carnivore experiment, and 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 then the main, I mean, he had various reasons for doing it, but one of the main ones was to make people think about whether this really was unhealthy food, uh, and and also um, about how to live in the the the, the so called junk food environment mm. uh, that we live in. You know, if you people eat most of their calories now outside the home. Uh, on, you know, as an average in the population, even in the UK, more than wow. half the calories are eaten outside the home. So people are eating from restaurants more and more. And if the trend continues, actually, most of our food will be eaten in restaurants in the decades to come. And um, so trying to figure out what is healthy food in fast food restaurants is, is actually quite an important question um, for general public health nutrition. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I thought that would be interesting as well. I, and generally with my own diet experiments, I do try to tie them into um, just things things I want to do in my own climbing. Um, so, I mean, I've said this many times before, including on your podcast, that when I tend to go on either ketogenic or especially carnivore diets, um, I, it does help me just get that little bit of extra edge in my shape for climbing just to sharpen up just by losing a couple of percent of body fat. Not not a lot, um, but it's, it's enough that matters, mainly because I have all the other ingredients quite well dialed. You know, I've been climbing for a long time. I'm good at working out sequences. I've been training for a long time. Um, it's hard to make my fingers get dramatically stronger with training. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's hard to add more training than I, than I do. So, you know, I've pulled a lot of levers uh, and that's one that makes quite a big difference to me. It's not the same for everyone. Um, so I sort of timing that in with the winter when I'm sort of getting in shape for peaking, if you like, to try hard boulder projects where I need to be at my lab absolute best. So I thought I would do the same thing as, as, as he did, um, and do this, uh, experiment. So what I actually did was, uh, I started off with the idea of eating for one month only in McDonald's and only eating the burger patties, not the bun, the fries, the sauce, the Coke, the ice cream, anything else, only the beef. Um, and so that was, my goal was to do that for 
one month and then just do basic measures like body weight, mood, performance, and also a blood panel before and after. So, you know, it's not a scientific experiment at all. It's just a, a fun a fun experiment. Really, it's just a stunt um, <laughs> just to, to see what happens and also to allow me to to then discuss some of the actual scientific evidence around the healthfulness of eating red meat, um, which I'm, I'm actually just in the middle of editing a video about doing that experiment. Mm. And I ended up doing it for two months. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so when I, got to, when I got to four weeks, I just, I felt, I felt really good. And I just thought, I'll just make it six weeks. And then, and then I got to six weeks and I went to book my blood draw and it was quite soon before Christmas and my local doctor's office couldn't give me an appointment till way, way after Christmas into the new year. So I just thought, oh, I'll just leave it over Christmas then and just make it two months. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of by accident that it ended up being two months, but it was also interesting uh, to to do it a little bit longer. Uh, the whole thing was a very interesting experience. But also just like, even down to like spending that much time being in a fast food restaurant like that, mm. observing observing the people who who went there, and observing the staff and the the whole thing, it was it was amazing. I mean, one of the most amazing things was just to see how busy they were. I mean, I remember eating in McDonald's like you know years ago as a teenager uh, when they first came to Glasgow, and um, I mean they were always fairly busy, but not like now. Jeez, mm. oh, like. From, from dawn till dusk, they're just queued out and all the staff, I felt so sorry for the staff that work there because they're just, they're completely stressed. They're just like piling food out of windows <laughs> as fast as they can do it. And wow. people were asking me like, uh, did people not um, question you about ordering only burger patties? Right. Because that's a strange but they were far too busy to be concerned <laughs> what the order was. <laughs> they didn't even notice that the same guy was coming in day after day and only eating no. burger patties. They're too busy. No. Wow. They did not hear. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so all of that was quite interesting. But uh, so like what happened, um, I lost three and a half kilos in wow. body weight. Okay. Now, I have to caveat that though and say that I, on the running diet, I did do a, a, a more, a, what people would call a moderate carb diet, higher carbohydrate than I would normally eat. And that normally makes, makes my weight climb, which it did. So in a sense, my weight was, my starting weight was sort of elevated. Okay, yeah. I, I, it was maybe, it's maybe more fair to say that it normalized back down to where it would be. That makes sense, right, yeah. Previous diet. Um, I also felt really good. I was climbing really well. Um, and my blood panel was, was actually the best blood panel I've had out of all diet experiments. I've had. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that's I, fascinating. That's fascinating. I have to caveat that as, as well by saying um, that depends a little bit on your point of view. So Sure, yeah. One one part of the blood panel that um, might be the most controversial part for many people would be LDL cholesterol, the, the so-called bad cholesterol. So for me, that always runs about the top end of the reference range, which if people know the reference range, that tops out. It differs between countries, but around 120 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. Okay. And that 
and my cholesterol numbers on a whole range of different diets seem to fluctuate roughly between those numbers. So it went from like, I think it was like 120 to 127. Okay. <laughs> so it was a rise that was like, it's so small that it's just random noise. It's, it's almost nothing, but it is still high. It, that is still slightly out of the reference range. So some people would be like, ah, that's, that's too high. You need to reduce that. Yeah. Um, I would say it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, but some other numbers like my HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol, rose quite a fair bit. And my triglycerides, the the amount of fat in your blood, dropped quite a bit. Hmm. And the ratio between those two numbers, triglycerides to HDL ratio, that is a quite an important overall marker of metabolic health. It's a good proxy for many other things such as insulin sensitivity, and uh, the, the size of your ApoB particles in your blood, all these things are important for metabolic health and risk of future disease. My HDL to triglyceride ratio dropped nearly in half from about 1.5 down to 0.7. And that, that was by far the biggest change in the whole panel. Most and of that's a good thing. Your, that's going in the in a a good positive thing. direction. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, so 1.5 would already be considered good um, but 0.7 would be considered excellent. You know, the, the lower is better for, for that marker. Gotcha. Uh, so so it's it's triglycerides over HDL? Tri HDL's yes, in the denominator? That, Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So in the face of it, that was quite a good a good panel. Um, I mean, I, I don't get too excited about small changes in, in numbers, but I think overall what I took from the blood panel was that there were no negative changes that I could find. Uh, over like other diets yeah some people i'm sure will find surprising <laughs> yeah totally no i yeah. i mean I, i'm so glad you brought this up because this was the study i was most interested to ask you about and i actually got a listener question about it from uh nicole asking about the logistics of it and if there are any funny stories or big takeaways from trying it um i was just and you already touched on this but i was just curious why you did it like what's the motivation there was it just to it sounds like it was mostly to prove a point like to look to to kind of ask this question and examine this question of okay we have all this fast food that's like generally making people less healthy why is that is it coming from the meat is it coming from these other things is it something else is it just calories is, yeah. what, what was your motivation with with this study in particular yeah. well it's, it's both the the culture that I live in, which is rock climbers, and also in the wider culture, um, all of us are eating more processed food in general. Um, you know, packaged food with a lot of ingredients that is made in a factory. And, um, you know, most, there are many people, even in our community of climbers, who would never dream of going to McDonald's to eat, but nonetheless eat quite a lot of processed food and nonetheless have quite a lot of diet related. Uh, health problems you know some of them might be things like digestive problems for some people it might be overweight or underweight for some people it might be mental health problems which are actually really common in our community um, and I have a bit of a worry at the moment the way the discourse is going among younger generations that people feel that if they just take their, their standard diet they're eating now and cut down the red meat in it either a bit further or all the way to zero that will be further improving their health and I think that that's not necessarily true at a minimum and quite possibly will make things worse mm. so 
the idea of eating McDonald's burger patties, it's almost like, um, you know, that's the epitome of junk food. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so in a way, it sort of forces people to think, what is actually in the food? What's actually in a burger? Because when I posted it up on Instagram and Twitter that I was actually going to do this, I mean, people had all sorts of objections to it, but one of them, they were saying like, well, it's horrific. Like the actual burger patties, like are really bad. And it's like, well, why do you think that? Like, what do you think's in them? And oh, it's not just meat. It's all sorts of other things. Well, what things? <laughs> it's actually not any, anything else. It is just beef mm. and nothing else. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when you buy a Big Mac, it has 55 ingredients, but the burger patty is just one. It's just beef. <laughs> yeah. And, Oh, wow, it's yeah. just, so it, that helps people to actually look at what they're eating and think, what is in it? You know, yeah. what is it? Yeah. You can think, you know, and and I think it's important that people at least give a cursory look to many of the things in their diet and think, what what is this? Like if they buy some sort of breakfast cereal or bread and to, to think, what what is this? What's it? What is it made of? Um, and just to get any level of thought usually gets you somewhere in your understanding of what your diet is and might, for some people, um, help them to connect the dots with different things. Um, you know, it's, someone just sent me their blood panel about 10 minutes ago, actually, uh, which was very low in iron. Um, and that's an extremely common thing. And, you know, that might make someone think, well, why why is my, my iron so low? Why am I struggling with fatigue and uh, not responding to my training and struggling to complete the training. Um, it might be because I'm anemic. And why am I anemic when I'm eating these foods that contain iron? And maybe as soon as you lift the hood on that question, then you might start to learn just a little bit more about food and nutrition and you might solve that problem. And a lot of people in that exact situation who are, who are either have frank iron deficiency anemia or just subclinical, you know, it might not be diagnosable but they're on the low end, um, and so they, they're they're not they're far from optimal, and uh, you know so they're just not responding to training and not not getting not in feeling good or enjoying life as mm -hmm. much as they could. Be. Um, then you know if they feel uh, that something like eating red meat is unhealthy, then that might prolong or compound that problem. And so I think it is important to, um, to to challenge that. And so what I was doing was really just challenging that in a kind of provocative manner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, compel in a compelling manner too. It's so fascinating. Um, going back to something you just touched on. So, you know, using the person as, as an example, I think we've all, um, I think this is a really common person, especially in the climbing community, but the person who's eating like kind of a, you know, relatively normal, I put normal in air quotes because who knows what normal means, but a relatively normal diet. Um, and then they think, okay, if I limit or eliminate red meat consumption, that's better than including or, or uh, continuing to include red meat. And you're saying your worry is that that will not be helpful. And at worst, it might be harmful. Why is that? What, what is it that you would be worried that people would be missing out on? Is it a, you know, a micronutrient deficiency? Um, you just touched on iron, obviously, but any others? Is it, um, is it protein? Is it other things? What is so special about red meat that would make it um, potentially more harmful to remove it than to keep it in, in that context? Um, well, animal foods in general, 
have a whole list of nutrients which are difficult to get from uh, non-animal foods. <laughs> um, you know, iron is one high quality and abundant protein is another. And then there are a whole series of, of other essential nutrients like the vitamins and minerals and also the non-essential nutrients, um, which are contained in a whole range of animal foods, but red meat is a particularly dense source of, of several nutrients. Um, and so if people remove it, then they may well dilute the nutrient density of their food, um, but also they may replace, replace it with um, foods which might be actively harmful to their health. Um, so uh, taking processed food in general, the hallmark of, of processed food, especially the most unhealthy types, come down to three ingredients, which are flour, sugar, and vegetable oil, um, which are very nutrient poor, extremely nutrient poor, and very energy rich, um, and may have other harmful effects. That's unclear in the literature, actually, but um, uh, <laughs> nutrition's in this funny period right now where it's increasingly clear that people who eat lots of ultra-processed food, in their quotes, um, have all of the poor health outcomes, and the nutrition world is currently figuring out, trying to figure out what exactly it is about ultra-processed food that's harmful, whether it is the dilution of nutrients um, or whether it is the speed of absorption of those nutrients when you eat them, or whether it's other aspects related to energy partitioning in the body that makes people metabolically sick and overfat, um, or a whole host of other things. Um, that question is far from ironed out. And actually, the more I look at it, the less confident I feel about <laughs> what to make of it. Um, but on the whole, um, if I think of McDonald's menu, and I think, well, if I walk into McDonald's and I want to eat something that's healthy, what what would I choose? And I would personally choose the burger patties. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of people would maybe have a different choice. And so really, I just I think it's good to get people to to think about, well, why, why is that? Like, what, what about those other foods that you would choose would be better? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, that yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I I just wanted to add that context for people. Um this is interesting. I got a question from uh from Mike and you kind of just answered it, but I think I think it's worth asking anyway. And I yeah, I I kind of filled in my own answer reading the question. And I was like, "Oh, he he missed meat in this in this question, but I'll let you tackle it." Mike writes, "On the last podcast, Dave mentioned a nutrient-dense diet. Some foods seem to be widely agreed to be highly nutritious, for example, spinach, whereas others are more controversial. Example, potatoes, brown rice, pasta. How does Dave assess whether certain foods are nutrient-dense? Are there any nutrients specifically that climbers should focus on? And I would say nutrients slash nutritious foods that climbers should focus on. I'll kind of add that, but. Yeah, yeah, quite a difficult question. I mean, well, we already talked about iron. That's that's the, the most common nutritional deficiency worldwide. Mm. Um, and in the UK, I think the rate runs around 20% for, for frank deficiency. Wow. <laughs> and no one wants to be there. Like that. that that's like, that's not a bar to aim for. You're, you're in rough shape if you're that far down yeah. that path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, vitamin D is another one. Vitamin K is another one. Um, so uh, zinc is a yeah common deficiency as well. Um, B12 
and often people in the vegan community will say, well, omnivores are deficient in B12 as well, and therefore everyone needs to supplement. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with that myself. I would say that the reason for that is because omnivores tend not to eat nearly as much red meat as they should. Um, and that I would, I would rather, always rather solve deficiencies or problems with nutrient density with food first, if, if possible. And like looking at my own bloods, my B12 is, is really good. Although, interestingly, after I was at McDonald's, I did an experiment doing a vegetarian diet and my active B12 did drop, drop pretty sharply. I wasn't supplementing it during the diet, but mm. it's an interesting observation to see that it will, it will drop. Um, uh, so those are, those are some key nutrients. I mean, there's great tools on, on the internet now. Uh, chronometer is probably the people use my fitness pal as well, but I, I tend to use chronometer. People can just type that into Google and you can set up a free account and it's an excellent way to, um, just get a handle on the, the habitual foods you eat. You don't need to actually track your food for any length of time. You, you, all you could do is actually just even for a, for a day, just think what I typically eat in a day and just type that into chronometer and you'll soon see, cause you can mouse over uh, particular foods and see how they contribute to the whole suite of nutrients being uh, protein, energy, the vitamins and the minerals and a few other um, trace elements. Uh, so you can see how each individual food contributes and you, you'll see that some foods are, are getting you a lot of bang for your buck and, and others are, are not so good. Mm-hmm. And I, I, one thing I would always think of is like, how many calories do you have to eat in order to reach an adequate level for these key nutrients? Right. So one of the, the benefits of animal foods is that you, you do tend to be able to reach a good level of given nutrients without having to eat too many calories. And that's one of the advantages of them. There's, there is another aspect of, of food in general, which is the concept of anti-nutrients. <laughs> um, and this is a difficult subject, and I, and I wish that I knew more about it. Um, I think the, it, is a, it is a real phenomenon, um, but just poorly understood. So the idea is that um, different foods have uh, other chemicals in them which inhibit the absorption of key nutrients and these can be all sorts of things like you can really get into the weeds here um and like last night i was talking to someone about um dairy and how dairy products can inhibit the absorption of different nutrients um, and iron actually um and yeah that's that's true but the research on it's kind of weak it's a small effect it's the same with many plant foods. There are a whole series of different anti-nutrients which interfere with the absorption. So that is also an important concept to think about that just because a food has a certain amount of a nutrient, not all of it will actually make it into your body. Mm. Right. Um, and some of it will be inhibited from absorption and will go right through you. And generally speaking, very generally speaking, the animal foods are uh, better for having fewer problems with in- interference of absorption and the the nutrients that are in animal foods tend to be what's called bioavailable bio in that most of what's in the food will be absorbed and will be um, also in the right form. Uh, like one example is vitamin A. 
vitamin A retinol and retinol not in plants. You know, the precursor of, of vitamin A is in plants and the body, the liver has to convert it and only a proportion of it's converted. That's actually one hypothesis, just a hypothesis of why some people do well on a vegan diet for many years and others after six months or so don't feel very good at all and have to discontinue the diet. It may be due to genetic differences in the conversion of things like beta carotene precursors into mm. vitamin A. Yeah. But if, if you just, just eat vitamin A, it's a fat soluble vitamin and um, different animal foods, then you might not have that problem. So <laughs> I hope that Hope that roughly answers answers that question. Well, again, it's you're you're doing what you always do, which is share some of the nuance and the complexity of it, which I think is really valuable for people well, to think about. It's tricky because there are so many different diets, you know. So yeah. there's like, um, I, I'm I'm mean, sort of acutely aware, in part because I actually often post my diet on the internet of uh, what I actually eat, of how people will look at my diet and say that it's it's totally weird to them. It's not what they would normally eat. Um, so there's such a wide range of foods that people can eat. So that's why I do think that using something like chronometer, just to get a rough handle on, you know, you look at a typical day for you, maybe you could plug in like two or three different days that are representative of your diet and get a rough look and see, oh, I'm pretty low on, I'm pretty low on iron. I'm pretty low on vitamin D. Oh, maybe that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> like that might relate to either a blood test or how I actually feel. And then that might bend to a decision to make some small change. And, you know, you, you may not need to experiment in the way that I have doing these kind of more organized or even extreme experiments. You might, you might, your experiment might just be taking a vitamin D supplement <laughs> and that actually might make quite a big difference to your health mm. uh, or magnesium or, or things or something like that, or fish oil or any of these, any of these nutrients that, commonly need to be supplemented. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, I have one thought that came to mind for Mike. Going back to the spinach thing, um, I have nothing against spinach whatsoever, but it is worth noting that a lot of those, you know, a lot of those like free articles that you'll find online on like healthline.com or things like that that compare foods for their nutrient uh, density mm -hmm. or that say like, you know, top 10 foods that are a great source of iron. You know, spinach is going to be high on that list, but it's worth paying attention to how much you actually have to consume to reach the levels that they're talking about. You know, you might have yeah. to eat like two pounds of spinach to get the same <laughs> amount of iron as, as a, a small cut of meat or something. And do you really want to be eating like pounds of spinach a day? I, I personally don't, but that's just something yeah, to pay attention to is that usually those articles are a little misleading because they don't really take into account how much you have to eat to get the, the dosage that they're talking yeah. about. No, that's a, that's a really important point. Yeah, and just thinking of, of iron in particular, um, you know, one of the key differences between the plant and animal forms is whether it comes in heme form or non-heme. So you're going to get heme iron from things like red meat, and so you're going to get much better absorption. And it also means that you, 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 yeah, like you say, you need to eat far less of the food if the nutrient is in a bioavailable form and it doesn't come with all these other these uh, anti-nutrients. So uh, even small amounts of animal foods go quite a long way to solve some of these holes in your, in your nutrition. And, uh, and I think that's borne out by the fact that uh, some of the health outcomes in people who eat vegetarian diets are quite divergent from 
vegan diets mm. um, in lots of different in lots of different areas. You know, even a small amount of animal foods can be pretty good in the diet. There's, most people don't need to uh, do what what you and I might do of a, of a carnivore diet. Like often um, these, some people would call them extreme diets. I would maybe call them prescription strength diets because they <laughs> they are actually useful to um, treat quite serious health conditions. Like, mm. I mean, I was I the, the main benefit I got from doing a carnivore diet was putting eczema into remission. That's a problem that most people don't have. They don't have to solve that. Right. So most people do just fine on an omnivorous diet and don't need to go to these extremes. But maybe um, th- there may be one or two nutrients that they are particularly low on, and uh, just a, a little bit of tracking. Or of course, you could speak to a nutritionist. But that would also do the job. But you, you know, you've got a free tool there that um, you know helps you see if you reach a sort of basic adequate level. So if there's, there's something that might stand out, if your intake of zinc might be just through the floor, and you might be like, oh yeah, that's that's just such an obvious problem to try and solve before you would even need to go to the next stage and you know seek help with your diet. Mm-hmm. Or for a lot of people they don't actually even know that they could feel better. I was like that for a long time. I thought eczema was part of my life and it it had been for 40 years since I was born. And I thought my dad had it for his whole life. My sister has it. um, And I thought it'd be with me all the time. I didn't know that that it actually was optional and (laughs) there was a a way to put it into remission um, that was just there. And it only took two days. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Quite, quite amazing. Incredible. Um, and, and the same goes for things like mental health. I mean, I, I found that uh, when I started to think about my diet a lot, one of the other major benefits was in, in mood, you know, just, just feeling better generally, in better mood, better resilience to stress, the stresses, general stresses of life, mm. um, which is quite important because, you know, so many of us do have a lot of stresses and, and a lot about modern life is um anxiety producing <laughs> yeah and quite difficult and so uh resilience is important for general life but definitely for athletic performance and uh and i feel on what i would call a healthy diet um, i feel more resilient mentally and that's a big benefit yeah yeah i mean that's a that's a huge topic that's a that that could easily be a whole podcast but i recently watched a documentary on um I can't think of the name of the classification of drugs, but like uh, Xanax, uh, Zoloft, you know, all all these, um, uh, is it SSRI? SSRIs, yes. Yeah. Inhibitors, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, at at least in the United States, we, you know, doctors just dish them out like candy almost, and it's just freaky mm-hmm. how easy it is to get a prescription for those things. And, if, you know, if anyone's taking them and they're helping you, that's awesome, but it it does... It does trouble me that nutrition's never a part of that conversation. You know, if you go and get a consultation and talk about mental health, it's like, oh, you have anxiety. Here you go. Here's a prescription. And, and no one ever talks about, you know, even the possibility of nutrition being a part of it and getting blood work done and looking at some of those things. So, yeah, yeah. It's another interesting yeah, thing a, to, to, to think about for people. Yeah, that's a problem across the whole of medicine is the, the over-reliance on drugs. And it starts... It actually starts at research 
I mean, it is actually kind of depressing sometimes reading papers on uh, biochemistry and physiology where there'll be something new discovered about, let's say, serotonin metabolism. And the conclusion of the paper is, well, we have identified this aspect of metabolism that then has an effect on serotonin, and that's important for mental health and depression. Um, so therefore, our findings might allow a drug development. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, maybe it could just help us understand the problem and then uh, correct it without resorting to having to fix it with a drug. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's not to say that, uh, you know, drugs and standard medicine is always bad. Absolutely not. But I agree with your your general point. I mean, I was the same. Like, I remember going to my doctor um, uh, to seek treatment for depression. And it took, a, it took me a lot to actually, to actually work up the courage to do that. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, like, what a... What do I want out of this? I actually went because I felt like I, I really needed to go. <laughs> I really needed to actually do something. Um, and I remember my doctor said, she was good actually. She she said, I, I could prescribe you an SSRI if you want, but they, they're not that effective, you know, on the whole. Like they, they're only effective for a small proportion of people. And even then they're not very effective. Um, Generally speaking, obviously there are extremes. Some people get great benefit from them, and I'm not saying that um, you should you should discount them altogether. But uh, she she her favourite option was to try some sort of counselling instead, um, which I did, and I just didn't think that was very effective. Um, but again, so I, I just went back to to kind of uh, coping with the problem rather than solving it uh, for a, a long time. And then it was only through doing diet experiments that it spontaneously resolved. And yeah, that that I again like I didn't know that that was that that would be possible. Mm. And and that's partly why I get so interested in in doing these these experiments at quite a sort of deep level because you can't sort of unsee that. You know, now I feel like um, every time I've done one of these experiments on on myself, I've discovered something that's actually really important to me. Like I did have depression. And I don't anymore. Wow. I did have it, and I don't have any more. I did have problems with uh, weight gain, and I don't anymore. So long as I continue to eat a certain way, and yeah, I'm really happy about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, those are those are massive wins. That's it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, I have two questions based on everything we've talked about about your diet experiments and red meat in particular. The first one, going back to the McDonald's experiment, I'm just, you know, I'm curious about your life satisfaction when you were doing this. I'm picturing you on Christmas morning sitting there with your bag of McDonald's hamburger patties while everyone else is eating, you know, some something delicious for breakfast, a normal Christmas breakfast. Um, yeah. I'm curious about your life satisfaction doing this and and any thoughts you have on that. And then kind of with that, if you felt so great after two months, and it sounds like that's kind of been the case with a few of these different experiments, why have you decided to kind of keep coming back to this default diet that you default to with, you know, it sounds like it's similar, mostly carnivore, uh, keto, lowish carb. Um, but yeah, is that the one that does it check more boxes? Is it just a little bit easier logistically? What What is it that uh, that has led you to kind of 
go back to this slightly more inclusive default diet over just eating hamburger patties for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, mainly just because I find I find the results of my own experience hard to believe. <laughs> I, I I kind of think right, okay, I've done this carnivore diet and uh, you know I've had good results. I mean, if if I then just let's say I I beef and then I go back to the kind of diet I've been eating this week, which is beef, eggs, some high fat dairy, and some low carb vegetables. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that free teaser of my conversation with Dave McLeod. One of my favorite people to talk to. I always have such a great time talking to Dave. If you want to listen to the full episode, the full episode is actually two hours and 13 minutes. So we go on to talk for quite a bit longer and covered many more topics. We talked about diet for a while longer. We talked about LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular risk. And if those are things that Dave is concerned about eating so much red meat, we talked about his thoughts on body composition, whether climbers should get a DEXA scan. And then we pivoted as promised and got into his training and the things that surprised him from his lattice test with Ollie Tor. If you guys don't know what we're talking about there, Dave posted a YouTube video a while back sharing a lattice test that he did with Ollie Tor and the results and the things that surprised him. So we got into the details with that. We talked about his goal to climb 9A plus, 515A sport why he doesn't travel abroad anymore, and some of his projects close to home that might be in that 9A plus range. And then we circled back to the carnivore diet and talked about finger strength because Dave has broken finger strength PRs every single time he's done the carnivore diet. So we talked about that and why that might be and just in general how he has continued to get stronger fingers by doing basically the same fingerboard protocol for the last 18 plus years and what he thinks the key is to getting stronger fingers over a lifetime of climbing. So all of that and a lot more in the full episode. Again, it's two hours and 13 minutes, the full version, and it's available right now for patrons who support the show. So if you want to listen to the rest, you can head over to patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. It just takes a few minutes to sign up and you can pick up right where you left off the timestamps should be the same and you can just finish the rest of the episode. And many, many more. I've published over 50 follow-up conversations with some of my favorite guests from the show. Lots of great episodes if you can't get enough of the nugget. Most importantly, I really appreciate the support from patrons. It really helps keep the nugget going. So thank you for listening. Thanks for considering signing up. Again, it just takes a few minutes to sign up at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. You'll get tons of perks. You can watch the video episodes if you prefer to watch video podcasts. You'll get ad-free episodes and all the follow-ups and you can cancel at any time, no questions asked. And final thing I'll mention, I almost forgot, is that if you are already a patron of Dave McLeod, I believe he's planning to post this episode on his Patreon feed. So if you're already supporting him, you can just go listen to the full version over there as well. All right. Thank you guys again for listening. I hope you have an amazing weekend and we will see you next time. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up, stop.